This podcast is sponsored by THX, a globally renowned brand focused on delivering premium entertainment experiences and is passionate about telling the stories of the creators behind great productions. Find out more at THX.com. Before we bring Eric up, I just want to give a little background on who Eric is. Uh, Eric, he graduated from the University of Southern California, the School of Cinematic Arts in 1998. And in 2011, Eric was uh, the supervising sound editor on Transformers Dark of the Moon, which he was nominated for an Academy Award, which is amazing. Um, in 2014, he notably worked on uh, the Godzilla, the um, uh, Gareth Edwards remake of Godzilla, and he had the chance to reimagine, re, not really redo, but recreate the iconic roar of Godzilla, and we're gonna dive into that too. And he recently just finished working on Ben Affleck's new film, and other sound credits include the recent films, including Trolls, uh, Ninja Turtles, The Shallows, Michael Bay's Transformers, all five now? All five of the Transformers. Kung Fu Panda, all three of Kung Fu, Kung Fu Panda. Uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, Terminator Genesis, World War Z, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Argo, Superman Returns, there's 56 plus credits. I mean, Eric is just an incredibly talented individual and um, I'm excited to welcome up. So please give him a big welcome. Thanks, Michael. That's a great introduction. Yeah. <laughs> um, so here's just a quick overview of what we're going to be kind of talking about. Eric did a wonderful job of pulling clips from various, a lot of the films I mentioned. But before we dive into your philosophy of sound, I'd love just to maybe get some reference of what were you like as a kid? Because all sound people have those stories of like the first film, the first yeah. project. What, what was it for you? What, what got you hooked? Well, uh, my dad was very much into uh, photography and he had a Super 8 camera and filmmaking. My mom was very much into music and got me playing the piano when I was five years old. And uh, at the time, my dad had a software company, so we always had computers around the house, and so I started kind of combining those things um, into MIDI and composing music and electronic sound, and I was starting to make movies. And by the time I got into, well, about eighth grade of middle school, I was working a lot with video and uh, trying to figure out how to do sound on these videos. And uh, Radio Shack, I bought a little four-channel analog mixer and converted my parents' dining room into an editing suite. And uh, so anyway, so one thing led to the next. And by the end of high school, I'd made like a few feature-length films of my own that I'd done the sound for. And nowadays, we're so fortunate. We have digital sound. We can very easily do that kind of thing. At the time, it's analog. and. You know, I had no automation or anything, so it's like, okay, hit record, all right, do a live pass on it and hope it all works. And if you miss your mark, then roll back and start over, so. What can you say in terms of you being in college in 1998 with the technology? I mean, nowadays I feel like the technology allows so, like, have access for so many great things for people to do. How do you describe kind of the constraints or the creative challenges of when you were first making that leap into becoming you know, a full-time? Sound designer, uh, supervising sound editor. Uh, well, yeah, so in film school, this was, you know, I was in film school between 1994 to 98. So it was kind of, you know, digital was just kind of coming into its own and uh, kind of in a more rudimentary way. 
And uh, so we actually kind of learned two tracks in film school. One was the traditional analog track, and the other was the developing digital track. So at the time, I was cutting on you know mono 16 millimeter mag um, with razor blades and a sync block and a moviola with headphones, and you could work on one track at a time. And uh, you'd put together five tracks <laughs> that were all just mag with picture fill and split reels. And, uh, and then you wouldn't hear everything together for the first time until you hit the mixing stage. And you've got five whopping mono tracks that you're mixing with. Um, so the constraint for that is obvious. Um, the benefit for that, in hindsight, is you have to really make choices when you have those kind of limitations. And imagine what it is you want ahead of time, and then try to create that. Rather than, um, you know, nowadays we can have hundreds of tracks playing at once, and, and that can actually kind of be, though that's a wonderful benefit, that can also be a bad thing if you don't know what it is that you want to do with all of those tracks, and pretty soon you have hundreds of layers and it turns to mud. You know, I think of sound as a lot as, um, it's like painting, you know, and if you use too many colors on your canvas and smear them together, eventually it turns brown. So a lot of times the trick is kind of simplicity, and imagining beforehand what it is you might be going for and then trying to create that. Nice. And so at your level now, you're working on amazing Hollywood tentpole films, big projects that are spanning months, years. Uh, how do you describe that first interaction when a project comes to you? And those, how do you describe the, the relationship of you with the director, you with the composer, you with all your creative team to give people a sense of how much thought goes into what you guys are going to be doing? Well, yeah, it all kind of begins with the script. And, you know, you read through the script and then start discussions with the directors. What do you kind of envision? You know, what's, what's possible? Um, I'm always very into pitching ideas right away. Like, this sequence might be really, really cool if we don't play music or, <laughs> or uh, for example, with Godzilla. Um, you know, we had pitched to Gareth um, this idea of the Mutos. I don't, I don't know if you've seen the film, but there's the creatures are Godzilla, and then there's two creatures called Mutos. And you discover that they're, it's a male and a female Muto, and they're trying to find each other. So we pitched the idea that um, we could use sound as part of that personality, the character of these creatures, and uh, use this concept of echolocation, how they're trying to communicate over thousands of miles to find each other, and it's kind of like a twisted love story, meet finally, and then mate, which is their purpose in the film. <laughs> so maybe let's just walk through in terms of what we're gonna hear. Um, we pulled out, Eric did a fantastic job of, what we're gonna hear is various stages of sounds. I think as an audience you experience many weeks, many months of work, things you, know, you really, you, as an audience, you don't, re you don't recognize you know, all the work that goes into. So for the Muto, uh, maybe you can just set up the first, the first sound of what we're hearing here with this, this tire. Remind me of what yeah. the first one was. Uh, the tire yeah, tread. Yeah, oh, okay. See. Yeah, so um, as part of uh, creating these sounds um, for these creatures, uh, you know, the obvious thing to do is go out and record animals and, you know, other big creatures, things that, you know, remind you of what the creature is, whether it be an elephant or reptiles or whatever. Um, but um, a lot of that's been already done, and one of the things that we really enjoy doing is uh, trying new things that haven't been done or heard before. 
And so a lot of experimentation went into these creatures in Godzilla, and um, we pulled in hundreds and hundreds of props and just played with them. And one of the techniques we used was using uh, high-resolution microphones, and in this case, uh, Sankin CO100K. So that mic has a frequency response that goes up to 100 kilohertz, which is five times higher than the range of human hearing. Um, but there's, so there's all this invisible sonic information in those recordings that we can then bring into the studio, slow down, and then suddenly they become audible. And one of these sounds that we didn't even know what it was gonna sound like once, you know, when we were recording it, it was um, a rubber tire that was on a uh, kind of trolley. And we took a serrated plastic knife and mic'd it really, really close and just rubbed the knife across the tire tread. And um, it was creating kind of a little squeaky kind of sound, what you'd expect. And uh, here, we can play that. Right. So um, slow down. <laughs> I mean, just as is, you don't understand maybe how that could become a muto, which is, I mean, how tall is this creature? I'm mean, on screen. It's huge. It's. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hundreds of feet tall. Yeah. So, so just by s slowing, I mean, what, how, how do you describe the process of where it ended up? Well, so on a conceptual level, you know, oftentimes we record small things but they're gonna be used for big things. And you know, where the micro becomes the macro. And you know, we've used that technique for tons of things. And Transformers film, you know, we have giant robot footsteps, which um, you know, might start as something very small. Like one of my favorite footsteps is my dryer at home, the dryer door <laughs> slamming. <laughs> and then you enhance that and slow it down and beef it up and it becomes huge. And the same is true for creature vocals. You know, you can start with something small and kind of make it big. So here's the, uh, the tire tread process now. <laughs> so the, the going back to in, in terms of talking with when, when you have those early interactions in the previous stage, script stage, um, a lot of times, these are special effects scenes, they haven't been fully realized yet, so you, they, they're giving you a previs. Maybe you can describe what the Godzilla previs, how that evolved into the final scene. So previses are, used to not be as common. Nowadays, they're kind of critical for doing a big movie. And a previs is essentially like a, um, you know, video game, graphic style version of what a sequence is gonna be. So it's kind of temp visuals, um, temp sound, um, usually there isn't even dialogue, it might just be subtitles. And um, we use that to kind of help choreograph the whole team, uh, from production design to cinematography, um, to you know everything, yeah. and sound included. And so for Godzilla, we had five different big previs sequences um, you know, one of them the Golden Gate sequence, one was the Hawaii tsunami sequence, um, and uh, another one was the Trestle Bridge, which we're going to show you. Um, so, yeah, Let's we'll start with the previs.
All right. <laughs> so um, you can see it's pretty rudimentary, and the sound is rudimentary too. That's a, you know mostly what um, the picture department was kind of putting together. And so that previs comes to me, and uh, then I'll do like a sound pass on it. We actually did you know big theatrical presentations for the studio of these scenes, partially because they wanted to increase the budget, and they needed something to show the studio like, hey, this is going to be cool. Give us some money, and here's a cool 7.1 yeah, yeah. soundtrack. Um, so, the, so after we did the sound on this, and this, by the way, this was before the film was ever shot. This was, you know, they're still working on the script, actually. How far point. out was this before they... This was about a year before, re well, yeah, a year and a half before release and maybe uh, three months before shooting, yeah. something like that. So, uh, so I guess when, for the final version... What is obviously the difference of the previs version? Like, they, you know, when people talk about temp love of something's placed in uh -huh. early on in previs, previs, and you get to the final, it's like, oh, I really liked what we had before. Do you have that, the same issue of sound that you, you might do? I mean, this is very simple, obviously. Previs to your final. What is some of the, I guess, uh, those conversations that you have to have with people of like, no, no, I'm going to do it better. I need more time. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so once we did our pass on this scene, that became the temp. And that's what the temp love winds up becoming. Um, you know, there's this term temp love, where we have temp effects in the Avid, picture to editors put together usually. And, um, you know, and then oftentimes on a lot of films, uh, filmmakers won't even hear the sound until they get to the mixing stage, which is terrible. Um, what you want to do is get the sound into the Avid right away. Like as soon as scenes get started to cut together, um, do a pass on the sound, get it into the Avid. That's, you know, that's been our philosophy and it works really great because it allows sound to evolve with the picture and um, because sound affects picture. It affects the emotions of the scene, it affects the tempos, it'll tell you if you need music or not, or how music is going to play with it, it'll affect how quickly you're cutting. Um, it might tell you where you need to cut a little less. And so, um, so that helps kind of inform the rest of the process. Um, and actually, once we did our sound pass on this, we, did very, we wound up doing very little variation to the actual theatrical film afterwards. Like a lot of probably... 80% of what we did was able to translate into the final feature. Um, and also the nice thing about a sequence like this is it tells you what you need to record. It was like right after we got this clip is when we started recording the Muto sounds and then applying them. So, should we? Uh, yeah, let's show, I love this. Uh, I had this quote that I think is in the movie, it said, I think Godzilla was only listening, the Muto was calling something else, which is like in the film, if you guys have seen this, you start understanding that there's another kind of motive of going on here that it starts to unravel and but yeah, let's take a look. Say again? I do not have a visual. What is your position over? Unreadable. Say again, over.
Awesome. <laughs> We, we picked a dark scene, didn't we? Yeah, it was a little dark. Sorry about that. But this. that's appropriate, though, yeah, because yeah, yeah. the mutas are blind, yeah. and they communicate through sound. So. You can hear this <laughs> subtle and not-so-subtle aspect of a slow tire processing of a tire, making a vocal, which then gets layered in with everything else, and you, you just assume that's the sound what a muto sounds like. Yeah, well, <laughs> we you... could have just gone to the zoo and recorded a muto, but why not, why not do it the hard way? Uh, so in the sense of this discussion of going about collecting sounds. Um, next, we want to talk about these clips from Kung Fu Panda. Uh, talk to me about whooshes. When you have a panda that has swords, sticks, fight scenes, many, many times, which we'll see in this clip, what's, what is it like to come up with something that doesn't sound like you're repeating? Like, how, yeah. What was the whole thought behind this? Well. Um, so the movie's called Kung Fu Panda. Um, so Kung Fu, to me, is it's all about whooshes and punches and, and the rhythms between those sort of things. And the, the f rhythms of the fighting almost becomes like music. And so we kind of thought of the fights, it should be like a Ringo Starr drum solo. And <laughs> so the first step was just collecting all of those ingredients. What are those sounds going to be? You know, so we started working on punches and slaps and you know, fighting sounds and whooshes. And the whoosh thing, I think, you know, I had no idea it was going to become as big a thing as it became. But we kind of got obsessed with it and recorded just the craziest library of whooshes, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different types of whooshes, um, including, you know, stretching 50 feet of bungee cord across the theater and setting up 10 mics and then releasing it for, you know, that kind of a sound. And um, that's on the bigger side of the whoosh spectrum. On the smaller side, little things like spatulas, whipping past the microphone. Um, at, and, and part of what we wanted to achieve was kind of being able to apply different whooshes to different characters. So, you know, Poe is a big roly-poly panda, so we wanted his whooshes to be a little thicker, so he wound up being a lot of, like, the blunt end of a cue stick, you know, for a pool. And Sifu, his master, is played by Dustin Hoffman, his little guy, and very precise and quick, um, we used a really sharp spatula, metal spatula, which had more of a scalpel kind of precision to it, and kind of everything in between. One quick little story, um, I was recording this one jagged piece of metal attached to a string on the Howard Hawks stage at Fox, and, uh, and it was awesome whoosh sound, I'm swinging it around the theater, and um, they had just put in a silver screen in the room, it was you know, $50,000 silver screen, and uh, the string broke. <laughs> I'm swinging this thing around, the string broke, and it's heading right towards the screen. And I had just one of those sinking feelings, like, oh no, here we go. And just as luck would have it, it hit right on the mat under the screen, so we didn't tear up, tear up the screen. That would have been a very expensive recording session. But, um, <laughs> uh, but we have a little um, variety pack of whooshes. You can hear a little of a little bit of what we did. So the first one here is uh, just, well, we'll let it play out as you. Spatula. Bamboo stick. The last one there was the bungee cord. <laughs> nice. So there's a little variety pack of And uh, I don't know if you want to talk about this gut bucket, the raw sound of the gut bucket. Do you want to show the clip first or? 
Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, maybe just set up. So pay attention, obviously, to the whooshes. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, yeah. May, maybe one little setup here. Um, uh, this is a scene where we actually started on the sound before they started the animation. So we were only in storyboard mode. Um, and uh, Hans Zimmer and John Powell were the music composers. So um, Ethan and me, um, Ethan's my partner, uh, met with Hans you know, way before the animation started. And we kind of decided what we wanted this scene to be, which was a um, kind of symphony of sound effects and music that all were choreographed together, like a really intricate fight scene where we picked our tempos, we picked where music would hit, where sound effects would hit, and where the give and takes would be so that we could actually have that all decided before animation started so animation could use all of our timings and, uh, and that way you, know, you don't hit the mix stage and it's a train wreck, it's all <laughs> planned beforehand. So yeah, let's Here we check go. it out. You are free to eat. Am I? Are you? You know, one funny little thing about the ending there where Poe throws the dumpling and Chifu catches it and then Chifu tosses it off screen. Um, we were just, we we're doing the final mix, just finishing the film, and we had just screened for um, the Chinese distributors, and they said, you know, that's very disrespectful to throw away food. <laughs> it's like a big cultural issue. So we added like a little bowl, ring <laughs> off screen. <laughs> so he didn't actually throw it away, he put it back in the bowl. <laughs> I love all the sounds of the chopsticks in the bowl. Yeah. It's like, you know what it sounds like, but when, I mean, the thing about animation is you're starting from nothing in terms of sound. You know, the palette, or, or, or what you can do with this blank canvas is amazing, and I, I think that's a fantastic example of, the, there's comedic timing, there's little nuances, breath, movement, there's so much going on, and you know, I think, like I said, you just take it for granted. It's, it's incredible to see, see that clip. Um, and do you want to talk about the gut bucket, too? Yes. <laughs> it's one of my favorite sounds from, from all of the movies, um, is the sound of Poe's belly, boing, <laughs> sound. And uh, we actually built a, um, a gut bucket, you know, which is basically an overturned tin bucket 
uh, with a stick on top of it and a string going from the top of the stick into the top of the bucket. And so you can adjust the tension of the string and create kind of a tone, like a kind of sound. And I think... Yeah, so here's, here's just the raw one before it's been processed. Right, and then uh, with a little bit of treatment. And, that, and that's a sound that a subwoofer loves. It's like if you ever want to make a shockwave kind of sound, it's kick that into the subwoofer and it gets beefy. So the first discussion we were talking about collecting sounds, collecting ingredients, you know, uh, a, lot of, like now, um, a lot of times people can compare this process to like making food. You have all your ingredients, you put it together, you cook it, and there's a process and, you know, uh, a step-by-step -step procedure uh, that happens. So when it, um, using transformers and bumblebee as an example, like we, we heard it with the tire, with the, the Mutu, with processing it. Now someone like with Bumblebee, who is a character very similar when you have, you know, characters like Wally or these, you know, inanimate objects that then become alive through sound, you take into other considerations, other emotions. Um, how do you describe the challenge of, for Transformers, like we have references of TV shows and this history, but now we're once again going in there and thinking, well, maybe we can do it differently, maybe we can do it better. How do you describe the challenge of Bumblebee? Well, yeah, um, yeah, Bumblebee's definitely different from the TV show. Um, and, uh, you know, the challenge was him was creating, we're trying to create a character with a rich personality and um, emotive, somebody you can connect to emotionally. And um, so sound becomes kind of his, his soul is, is the goal. And uh, so to create Bumblebee, um, we kind of looked for all the most kind of emotional sounding things we could find. And uh, one of those things was um, my dog Freya, <laughs> who's still with us. You know, it was 10 years ago that we were doing the first Transformers film, but Freya, she just turned 15 years old about two weeks ago, and she's still making great sounds. I, I try to put her in every movie I do. Um, but uh, she actually became Bumblebee, and uh, one of the things that I always try to do is when coming back from a trip, and she hasn't seen me for a while, I'll uh, have my recording rig with me, and I'll hit record before I get, get to the front door. And uh, I think we have the sound of one of those trips where she f discovered I'd come home. <laughs> I was just thinking you're going to be away from her for four days here at Savannah. I wonder what, what it's <laughs> yeah. going to sound like. She'll be in number five yeah. next summer. <laughs> so here's just uh, the raw recording first. We all know that too well. <laughs> for pretty pretty yeah. emotional. And um, so, so Bumblebee uh, is essentially that kind of a sound. Um, and it wasn't just Freya who, who is Bumblebee's voice. A lot of us contributed our voices to it as well. But once processed, um, that exact recording sounds a little different. <laughs> And of 
of course, for a film, that's too much. You know, it's, it's a little too intense, but you've got the pieces and you can stretch them out a little bit, give space between them, rearrange them. And uh, that bec became one of the main ingredients for, for Bumblebee. Also, the, uh, this is one of the Bumblebee, ho the hoppy one. That's right. Describe yeah. this. Yeah, um, so Ethan and I, um, one of our best friends and uh, collaborators for a number of movies um, is Mike Hopkins, um, who did he's a New Zealander, did the Lord of the Rings films, and he um, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago um, in an accident. And, um, but he lent his voice to Bumblebee as well on the first three films, and uh, he was really good at doing kind of emotional vocal sounds, so I think we have a... Recording of Hoppy. <laughs> this is what he sounds like all the time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and, and processed. Uh... <laughs> and for so people understand, it's not just like one plug in, you like apply. Oh, now we have the sound of, of Bumblebee. How many iterations do you think this went through? Um, well, it took a lot of experimentation. Yeah. Um, also, one of the things was we wanted to make sure that our Autobot vocals and vocal treatments were distinctly different from the Decepticon vocals, which is the good versus the bad. We wanted, the, we wanted that to, to be able to hear if it's like a good character or a bad character. So the treatment for Bumblebee, you know, is a lot smoother, it's less zangy and rizzy, you know, it's uh, a little more pleasant. Um, so maybe let's just set up a little bit of this. This is from the first Transformers? There? Yes. And um, you'll hear in the scene Bumblebee is kind of, you'll see he's kind of in distress, and you'll, you'll hear some of those vocals scattered throughout, so let's take a listen. Actually, um, <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I remember the, the first time we played that scene for Michael with the sound for Michael Bay, um, he's like, oh my God, it feels like we're killing a puppy. Awesome. <laughs> but um, and it's funny, like for me, the most emotional scenes from the Transformers films are the Bumblebee scenes. Yeah. And it's like not a human actor, not a human character but um, you know, a robot character with kind of a universal language that kind of transcends spo spoken language. And so that's, it's very fun when we can dig into that. So keep your eyes out for number five coming soon. Next summer. Which, which Eric is working on now, right? 
Yeah, we've, we've been working on it for, uh, Michael just finished shooting, but we've, we've been working on the sound concurrently with the shooting. So as scenes have been coming in, um, I think we've got 80 minutes of the film already done. And, uh, and they just started post. So, <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of work left to do. But. Yeah. Um, so going back to our conversation about collaboration, working closely with filmmakers, um, shifting gears here from Transformers to Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, a very different film. And now for something completely different. <laughs> yeah. Um, for those of you who haven't seen this, this amazing film, maybe just describe what the goal was, because it's a very patient film. It's incredibly visual, but also um, the sound treatment of music and sound effects. I think patient is the best way to put it, but what, what were those conversations like with, with Terrence of what he wanted to achieve with a film like this? Um, <clears throat> well, I've, I've worked on three films uh, now with Terry Malick, and um, he's a hard filmmaker to describe. Um, you know, it's... Uh, Maybe the best way to start describing that is the first time I met him. So uh, we flew out to Austin. It was on the film called The New World. And uh, 20 minutes after meeting him, you know, um, he just started going into his kind of philosophy about sound. And he, he, he described it this way. He's like, well, the sound of this movie should be like a Japanese painting. And I'm writing all this down like, okay, you know. Uh, <laughs> should be like a Japanese painting, simple but bold. Three brush strokes, black on white, should be like a marble on an inclined plane, slowly accelerating down towards gravity, like a train on train tracks where the z-axis is constantly evolving, waving past you like ocean waves. And I'm just writing all this down going, oh my god, I'm not exactly sure what he's talking about, but I think I know what he's talking about. Um, so. Uh, you know, in a, a normal film, you have a scene change, and you might just make a hard cut. Terry calls that a Burbank edit. He wants, he, wa he wants to have like a 50-foot, you know, 30-second like fade out of the outgoing scene and then incoming scene. So you don't, you don't hear the cuts, unless there are places where we do do that. But for the most part, he wants it to be kind of a seamless, oceanic experience. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that being said, one of the challenges was uh, you had a record trip to Cambodia. Yes. And you, what was your goal? I mean, what was it that, why would you go to Cambodia? What was it about going to Cambodia that you wanted to capture? Yeah, so um, for all of his films uh, required a lot of recording. On The New World, we had over, we had uh, 170 different species of birds that um, were in the movie and had to be accurate for time of day. Um, habitat, we had 10 major different habitats um, and time of year. And I had this spreadsheet that covered my entire wall in my editing room so I could say, okay, this scene is here and then, and okay, here's the 10 different types of birds that would be accurate for this scene. And so for Tree of Life, um, we have this whole Cretaceous period in the film. It's basically all of real two. And uh, you can't just go record the Cretaceous period. <laughs> so we, we were looking for places in the world that had the oldest um, forests and oldest jungles. And a lot of those are in Southeast Asia. So we went to Vietnam and Cambodia and uh, had a guide take us out to, to record all the different insects, um, frogs. The birds we had to be really careful about because um, Cretaceous birds are all extinct at this point. 
So we had help with the Los Angeles Ornithology Department at the Natural History Museum. They pointed us to analogous birds that exist today that have similar um, skull and larynx structures or coccyx for the birds. And, uh, and so we kind of recreated a bunch of the extinct bird species. But um, uh, the scene we're gonna play, you're, you're gonna hear some of that and you're also gonna hear some frogs that, maybe I'll tell the story after the clip yeah, yeah, about the great. frogs. Yeah. So there's a lot going on throughout, throughout those scenes. You have dinosaurs, there's the destruction of Earth, yeah. and, and one of the things was this internal silence, is what you guys, I guess, called it. Uh, yeah, so right when you see this asteroid hit Earth, there's a little sound. Should we just play the sound first, and then yeah. and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> Terry loved this sound, and uh, he, he named it, he, he called it the, the sound of eternal silence, which I was like, oh man, that's great. And so the file name, I made sure to change it to that. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I, I also made sure not to tell him what the sound actually was, which was me breathing into a microphone. Because <laughs> it would have been gone. But, uh, <laughs> That's that's part of the art of this too. It's like you you got to be careful telling filmmakers what's what. Like with Godzilla, I I didn't tell Gareth Edwards, the director, how we made Godzilla's roar until we were done with the movie, because you don't want them thinking about that. And if you're thinking about it too much, that's all they're thinking about, and then it's the magic. The magic disappears. Yeah. yeah. And so much of obviously the experience of the audience is, or it's seen as an audience member for the first time. You'll take it for what it is. They're not going to make, oh, well, just because it's a CG dinosaur doesn't mean that we can't hear what a CG or a dinosaur should sound like, you know? Right. I mean, that scene is so hard to watch. You, you believe that those dinosaurs are there and the struggle is really happening and unfold. So um, that's great. So the Cambodia frogs. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 
I had a guide when I was in Cambodia and take me around all these great recording places. And uh, middle of the night one night, I woke up and somebody was banging on my door. And this is uh, Seam Reap, which is not far from Angkor Wat. And uh, it was the guide and his wife. And they're like, let's go record. <laughs> I'm like, OK. <laughs> it's like 2 in the morning. And so we jump into, he had a motorcycle rickshaw. And he took me way deep into the jungle. And um, uh, I really wanted to record these little frogs. I'd been hearing these clicky frogs. And I'd never been able to get a good recording because frogs are so sensitive to movement or any predator around them. So, um, but finally, I heard these little guys. And it took me about an hour to inch towards them and get within a few feet of them. Um, you know, you'd move two feet, and they'd stop. And then you'd have to wait, and then they'd start going again. You'd move another two feet, they stop. Finally, I'm right up next to them. And uh, so I'm recording, I'm rolling. Um, it's two little t frogs communicating antiphonally. So one little guy would be clicking, the other one would be clicking. And this is in, in that scene there, that was when the, the trees, the looking up at the canopy. Exactly. After we come out of the little fetal heartbeat moment and we're, we're there under the trees, that was that sound right there. And uh, so I was thrilled to get this recording. And um, I turned my head, and I noticed that right next to me, there's this big black jungle cat lying right next to me. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And this, you know, and I'm under headphones. I can hear everything going on. And this guy was so silent, he snuck up on me. He snuck up on me the same way I snuck up on the frogs. So that was like a little epiphany moment. I'm like, OK, this is all circle of something. <laughs> but here's, I mean, the sound of the frogs. Imagine, like, oh, it's so easy. Just walk outside, put your microphone down, done. But, I mean, how much time do you think it took to get this? This sound took a couple hours. That's cool. And the hard part about this sound was, too, um, Cambodia at night, the jungles are pretty loud. You have a lot of insects. Some places, it's just a thousand frogs going at once. And big symphonic chorus. So to get the really singular little detail thing, it's a lot of luck. And uh, so that was, I felt very fortunate to, <laughs> to get that. Fantastic. And another, um, now moving on to a film like Argo, using Argo as an example of what happens in a mix. Uh, many times, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of decisions that are leading up to the mix stage. But once you get on the mix stage, it's not over yet. There's still so many opportunities to have really creative decisions that, that really influence how a scene plays out. Um, you know, we're talking dialogue, effects, foley, backgrounds, music. They're all coming together. Mm -hmm. When we look at, we have um, this clip from Argo, but it's the opening of this embassy ray, which we have just the production guide track. So maybe just describe what we're hearing and seeing. Okay, yeah, so um, this scene takes place in the beginning of the film. It's, uh, we're in Tehran. Um, uh, end of 1979, beginning of 1980, and uh, the revolution is happening, and the U.S. Embassy is being stormed by the Revolutionary Guard, the students. And uh, <clears throat> so they are, there's protests, they're chanting, they're yelling, um, and so maybe we'll just play we'll this, play and then I'll elaborate more. And so w with this production track, is this what was on set then for the day? So this was on set. This is just raw, raw set recording.
So I'm going to cut it right there. You yeah, get the idea, right? It's, yeah, you get the idea. It's pretty repetitive. <laughs> but this is, this, this, was this something that was then in the Avid for the edit then? Pardon? Was, was this in the Avid, this, this sound? Was this what they were cutting yeah, to most yeah, likely? This, this, yeah, this was the Avid sound. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I remember coming in the picture department, watching the sequence down, and um, my first thought was, oh my God, this, this would be so cool to just do with sound only, not have any score, just make it really real and gritty, like almost like a documentary, like you're right there. And I'm about to say this, and um, Ben and Billy Goldenberg, the picture editor, turn around you know, from the monitors and they go, we wanna play this just all sound. <laughs> I'm like, oh shoot, D didn't even need to pitch that, you're doing the work for me, great. <laughs> so, um, but the challenge here was that this was shot in Istanbul, in Turkey, so it's about a thousand uh, Arabic-speaking extras that are doing these chants. And uh, for any native, I don't know if we have any native Farsi speakers in the audience here, but you might, any Farsi speaker would know that that's not, those are not Iranians chanting. <laughs> so um, we had to completely redo all of those chants. And so on the Warner Brothers lot, uh, we set up, we had over 100 um, native Farsi-speaking extras redo the, all the chants. And we had five different kind of protest chants. And we mic'd them. We had about 20 different microphone angles from on the streets, from overhead, from behind windows, and um, just to get all of that. And then once we had that material, we kind of enhanced it to make it sound like 1,000 rather than 100. Um, and, uh, and accurately. Yeah, I mean, and also at this point, you probably have a close to picture lock, so you might know, like you're saying, the perspectives of Ryan from the face, from the, the, very, exactly. the various heights and angles, which we'll hear. Let's take a listen. there. I mean, it, it, the, it continues. I mean, this is a really long sequence that they're chanting, 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 but it builds up and actually grows into them raiding the embassy. Right. And that's, that's finally when we introduce some music. And it's very simple. It's just a single tone. Um, but uh, what was fun about this movie is we can do really long sonic arcs that um, create this tension and it just builds and builds and builds. And then when they finally get out of there, there's like, then our music comes in and allows sort of the emotions to go, oh, and catch a breath. Yeah. Um, awesome. Uh, thank you. Um, so I think transitioning, just to be cautious of time here, I wanted to, um, so first question, how do you get a sound job in Hollywood? Um, I'd say be persistent and also come in with a skill. You know, it's, uh, you're in this incredible program here at SCAD and uh, it's, uh, you're learning all of the tricks that you need and that kind of experience is, is invaluable. Um, and just be persistent. And you know, that you might need to come in as, a, as an intern or you know, Hollywood sound is unionized. There's, a, there's something called Y16 which is the entry-level position into, into the union. And uh, 
And uh, that's where you get on-the-job on training. And, and the way I started was um, I started in television, which actually was really, really useful because um, you have to work very, very quickly. You have like five days to do an hour-long episode. So you don't have a lot of time to question yourself or, or think too much. You just have to do it and knock it out. And it's incredible trial by fire kind of training. So um, that's, that's an excellent route. <laughs> yeah, back in the back corner there? Yeah, yeah, you, a, yeah. A film like Godzilla, what percentage of sounds would come from a library versus these custom recordings for you? Uh, zero percent of Godzilla sounds came from a library. Uh, I actually have two two questions, if that's cool. Um, number one is, you so you yourself were out, obviously out in uh, Cambodia recording the frogs. Um, is that is it unusual for the supervising sound editor to be out recording? Is that something that you do just because you you obviously love doing it, or? Um, I you know I don't know how unusual it is. I think it's kind of somewhat common. I don't know. I don't work with a lot of other supervisors. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, oftentimes if, if you know, if there, there's time constraints and I'm not able to get out on location somewhere, I'll hire somebody who can go out. Um, but I like to be there. Just um, that's often where I get my best ideas, too, you know. And usually there's these serendipitous moments that I never would have been, been able to plan for or expect that present themselves and that becomes like part of the creative process. Um, so I, I love doing it. I'm always carrying my rig around, so. Fantastic. Who else has some questions here? Yeah, gentleman in the back right behind you there. Uh, right behind you, yeah. So thanks for, for sharing this. Uh, for someone who's a geek about making films, this is fascinating. Would you talk a little bit about uh, when even at Previs, when your vision might be in conflict uh, with the directors and, and how that conflict can get worked out or how assertive you have to be in making your vision uh, and helping that director see your vision become film? Yeah, um, you know, the conflict is generally not something that happens. Um, but uh, I might have an idea that is maybe different from the filmmakers. The filmmaker might have an idea that's different from mine. I try to do unexpected things, things that are kind of out of the box that might surprise a director and in a good way. But um, that said, you can't be precious about stuff. You know, I might, I might do a pass on a scene and I, I love it, um, but I need to be happy about the idea of letting it go. And, when I first got started, you know, it was 18 years ago, I was a lot more precious about things. Like, oh, I've spent a week working on this one thing. And, uh, and if, if I have to get rid of it or change it or replace it, it would kind of stress me out. Nowadays, I'm like thrilled to get rid of everything, start over. Um, that's part of the process, that's part of the fun. It's, it's a collaboration, you know. And, uh, and it can always be better. It can always be better. And ultimately, the biggest limit, like once you get over ego and whatever, the biggest limit is um, the release date. So 
And, you know, I finish a movie, so, you know, Ben Affleck's new movie, Live By Night, I just finished like 48 hours ago. And, uh, and I'm still having ideas about it. <laughs> and, it's, and I would keep working on it indefinitely. It can always be better. I mean, that's the but... feedback that every crew is. There's never enough time. There's never enough money. There's never enough of everything. I mean, you're right. It's, the deadline is the self-imposed. And it's yeah. good. It's good to have constraints. But I think the main thing is just not, not ever to be precious and be collaborative and be willing to start over. You know, that's, if you embrace that, then you're, you're going to have a good... Career. Favorite director? Favorite might, I might hurt some director's feelings, but... <laughs> you have an amazing roster of directors. I mean, from Michael Bay to uh, Gareth Edwards. I'll put it that way. And, you know, and the thing that they all share, and Terry Malick included, um, they all love sound. And for me, that's the best kind of director to work with. Somebody who loves sound, that's engaged with it, that cares about it. Um, uh, I had one bad experience about a year ago, and I won't name any names, but you know, it's uh, the worst situation is if you get a director who is afraid of any, everything and comes from a place of fear and, and then doesn't have the confidence to commit to anything. And when you just go in circles and it's wishy-washy and you're never, you know, you're feeling like you're building a house on a foundation of sand. Um, that's not a good feeling. And fortunately, I've only had one experience like that um, about a year ago. And I, I won't mention who, <laughs> what that was. Great question. <laughs> uh, sure, do we have a mic maybe down here? All right, here, take this one. Okay, so you said you were working with, with Hans Zimmer and stuff, which, uh, which is really cool. Um, and I think a lot of people uh, might agree that the best sound scores, uh, sound and score combinations, are when they feel like they're part of the same element. So when you have those conversations with people like Hans, who are uh, musicians, and granted Hans has a lot of film experience, um, what language do you speak? Do you speak sound language? Do you speak music? Or is it kind of fluent? I mean, does that depend on your musical training? or? Yeah, it's, it's very fluid. You know, the, I think most of the way we communicate is um, f about feeling, about s like story and emotion, and what are we trying to achieve in a moment, you know? Um, and uh, if something, like if we're on a mixing stage, and like Terminator Genesis, Hans, you know, did as well with Lorne, Lorne Balfe, and uh, it's really easy in an action picture to, for it to just become too much. You know, and so the trick becomes not what you add to the track; it's what you subtract. How can you create space? And and uh, so that's often part of the discussion. Like, what can we? How can we simplify this and make it more coherent? So on Hans's end, it might be, okay, well, our synth pads are just muddying things up. And so oftentimes that's the kind of terminology we use. How do we clarify? How do we unmuddy? Um, how do we pick moments? I think also when you're on the mix stage, it's pretty obvious when everyone agrees it's not quite working, it's not quite gelling, something needs to change, adding, subtracting, whatever it may be. And obviously, a lot of times it's simplifying. Exactly. And I'm, I'm the first on a stage to go like, okay, this is turning brown. Like, how do we, <laughs> how do we clean this up? And, um, and I'm happy to drop elements of mine and, you know, and a lot of scenes like, action scenes, you don't need backgrounds, for example. Um, you don't need steady things. Steady things are a sonic killer. 
You know, so how do we create dynamics, like negative space, so that once you find the valleys, your peaks can be even higher rather than just one plateau. You can actually look at the waveforms of your print masters or your Pro Tools sessions, and if it's just thick all the way across, then you know, okay, that's, that's an issue. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Two questions. Uh, the first one is uh, about your choice of microphones. And the second question is uh, uh, something I could relate to, and I wonder if you can. I, I listened to an album like Sgt. Pepper was done four track, and I wonder, how did they do that? Do you ever listen, uh, watch a film like King Kong and wonder, how did they do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And King Kong's a great example, but maybe I should start with the second part of your question and then go to the first part. Um, well, King Kong was revolutionary for sound. And I remember as a kid seeing it and reacting emotionally to King Kong as a character. And that was done in 1933, and it was Murray Spivak using, you know, nowadays we haul around, you know, sound devices, recorders, everything's portable. You can go record a, a lion and easily reverse it. In that day and age, it took an entire console reel to reel and they had to power it and move it around and never been done before. Nobody had ever reversed and very speeded a sound effect. Um, and uh, so I remember seeing that film and just being, wow, how did that, this is better than like modern films. And um, I think recently I was just again watching a movie called District Nine and just the language of that character, I was like, got goosebumps. Like, how did, how did they do that? And um, I, I know the sound designer and I asked him, he was like, oh yeah, we created a whole language and using little clicks and pops and sounds. And, um, so hopefully I answered the second part of your question <laughs> adequately. First part, what kind of microphones do I use? Um, a microphone is a lot like a camera lens. You know, uh, maybe one lens works for most things, but not always. Maybe sometimes you want the wide-angle lens, or sometimes you want your telephoto, or sometimes you want to get off the sticks and go Steadicam. And, um, so my, I have a assortment of microphones I use. My workhorse microphone, which I use for most things, is a Neumann 191, um, which is a stereo shotgun, and it's an MS microphone. So what I can do is record an undecoded MS and uh, then bring that into the studio and be able, be able to adjust my imaging. So if I want like a real precision like center, I can say, okay, I want that crow 30 feet away, take out the sides. And, um, or if I want a really nice wide image, you know, an atmosphere, ocean wave, I can reduce my center, make, go figure eight and make it nice and wide. So the Neumann 191 MS is my main workhorse mic. It's also really low noise floor, so you can, it's very delicate, but it's also robust, so I can record an F-22 Stealth Raptor fighter and not blow my mic. Um, and uh, other mics that I use quite a bit, like whether well, it's the Sankin CO100, which is good for high frequency stuff. Um, for atmospheres, uh, Almost for everything now, I'm using the Ambisonics surround field microphone, uh, which is fantastic. It's, uh, it records to four channels, but decodes to 7.1. And uh, I've, I use it for ocean waves, winds, uh, car interiors. On Live By Night, we have all these period car Model As, and 
so I can mount those in the car, and it's actually better than my onboard mics on the muffler and transmission. Um, it's just a realistic, enveloping kind of sound. The, the other nice thing about the Ambisonics is in Pro Tools, you can actually automate where it's pointing. So you can do a three, 360-degree tilts and rotation. You can go up, you can go down. You can change the polar patterns of the elements within it to get more specific. It's pretty cool. If we just let him go, he'll go, we'll be here all day. Cause... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. The thing I want to say is uh, there's a certain point where it's, no, it's not about the, the technology. It's not about the, it's, it's a tool, obviously. Yeah. And a lot of times when, we, when people start, I remember when I was first in college, I was like, I need that microphone. That's the microphone that's going to let me get that sound that I want. Yeah. The technology is, it's important, but it's not important as well. It should be in, invisible. Um, the important thing is what you're creating with that tool. That's the important thing. And sometimes it's a super low-tech solution, actually. Sometimes simpler is better. Actually, most of the time, simpler is better. Um, so it's easy to get tripped up on the technology, but um, it should be invisible. The important thing is your imagination. Fantastic. Let's take a few more here. Uh, I was just going to ask, how does your approach change, if at all, uh, when working with an animation versus a live action feature? Thanks. Yeah, um, <clears throat> animation, well, it's a different workflow, um, first of all. Animation starts actually with editorial, which in live action, editorial is post. Um, in animation, editorial is the beginning of the process. It's really the picture editor and the director start stringing together storyboards, putting in temp vocals, um, trying to put the scene together before they then record the actors and before animation gets started. And sound kind of gets going in the beginning as well. And uh, if there's a character, you know, there's one DreamWorks animation film I'll be doing, it comes out in 2019. And we started with the sound very early because one of the main characters is uh, a creature. And he's uh, got a lot of personality. And uh, so we've, we're kind of creating his, his voice, you know, now. And uh, so that the animators have something to cue off of and kind of create that character. And so obviously in live action, that's not the case. You know, it's the actor doing that performance unless you're doing a pseudo live-action animation like the Transformers films, <laughs> where it's kind of a combination of created characters and actual live-action characters. The other big difference with animation, I think, is there's a little more leeway to be playful and have some whimsy, and, uh, and which, I, which I really enjoy, which I really like. We have time for one more question. All right. Hi, thank you for your presentation. I want to know, um, how the Atmos system uh, make an impact for your film. I have watched an um, Atmos version of Godzilla, that's really fantastic, so I want to know your vision, thank you. Yeah, so what he's referencing is Atmos, which is a, an immersive format by Dolby, and there's, there's many of these. Immersive in the sense, you know, in a theater, traditionally it's a 5171, and in the, in the immersive formats, you have speakers over the top. Um, so Yeah, not just over the top. Yeah, like 7.1, for example, you'll have LCR, left, center, right, left surround, side surround, left, right, side surround, left, rear, right, rear, and plus your subwoofer is the point one. Um, with Atmos, you actually not only have the ceiling speakers arrays, 
but you've got um, full frequency surrounds that start right at the edge of the proscenium. So, you know, traditionally surround is about halfway through the room and then it's one big zone. And with Atmos, it actually just goes right off the screen and continues in a, in a circle. So you essentially have this big hemisphere. And also having full frequency surrounds is huge. Like and, and base management too. And base yeah. management in, in the rear as well. So if you're dropping a, a big robot body fall in the, in the surrounds, it'll have the same weight. You know, it won't go anemic as soon as you pan it off the screen. Um, you know, for, to me, it's essentially resolution. You know, it's, uh, you just have more resolution with Atmos. And, uh, but the challenge with Atmos is the same with any other format. You still want to be coherent and, and clear and elegant and precise. Um, but I, I love it. You, I can just take a 7.1, not do anything to it, run it through the Atmos system, and it sounds better. It's a, it's a different type of technology that just is better. <laughs> so. You guys, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Eric, at all. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to my chat with Eric Adal at the Savannah Film Festival. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, THX, a globally renowned brand focused on delivering premium entertainment experiences and is passionate about telling the stories of the creators behind great productions. Find out more at THX.com.